Jesus so very much. I just love him. There was no crown for him of silver or of gold. There was no diadem for him to hold. But blood, blood adorned his brow. But proud it stains he bore. And sinners, they gave to him the crown that he wore. He did not reign upon a throne of ivory. He died upon the cross of Calvary. For sinners there he counted all he owned as loss. And he surveyed his kingdom from a cross. There was no crown for him, not of silver nor of gold. There was no diadem for him to hold. But blood adorned his brow, and proud his stain he bore, and sinners gave, gave to him the crown he wore. A rugged cross became his throne, his kingdom was in hearts in hearts alone he wrote his love in crimson and wore the crown of thorns upon his head he did not reign upon a throne of ivory he died upon upon the cross of Calvary for sinners there he counted all he owned as lost and he surveyed his kingdom from a cross, a rugged cross became his throne, his kingdom in hearts and hearts alone. He wrote his love in crimson and he wore the thorns the thorn of crowns upon his
There are some very beautiful true things that are written in the Bible about Jesus. Going all of the way back to the Old Testament. I think one of the most precious outstanding things that so depicted the agony of his heart, the hurt of his soul, is starting in Isaiah 52, 14. It says that his visage, that's a word for face, and his form, that's a word for body, was marred more than any man. In 53, 3 of Isaiah, he goes on. He was despised, he was rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. God has laid it on him. He's laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is as a lamb brought to slaughter. As a lamb brought to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment. And who shall declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of the people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and the rich. And in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet he was made to suffer. He, Jesus, was the tree of life, crucified on the cross, the tree of good and evil. There are so many beautiful things to think about with Jesus. But I want to say this, and this may sound a little different than what you're used to hearing. No one should try to compare the wounds and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to any other human. Jesus was a healer and a raiser of the dead. The extent of his wounds are irrelevant. He has power to heal no matter how hideous the hurt. Jesus predicted his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. He predicted it in Mark and Matthew, Matthew 20, 18 through 19, and in John. Some of you may not be able to exactly verify that because of the deep way that I look at some of the scriptures. Then most beautifully he said, when this is over, I will rise on the third day. Matthew 28, 18-19 again. And I will meet you in Galilee. There's an old song that I used to love to sing. I'll meet you in the morning by the bright riverside when all sorrow has drifted away. This was revealed in addition to the other times that Jesus said it and shared it with his disciples. To Mark. Now Mark happened to also be a surname of John, the disciple. And it was revealed, it says, by a young man. Mark, um, oh, wasn't revealed by Mark. It was revealed by a young man in the book of Mark. 
chapter 16, 5 through 7. It's interesting, and I want you to keep that in mind, that it does say in this verse here, a young man. Does it say a young angel? We'll talk about that, Lord willing, if we can get around to it. Then in John 10, 17, and if we were to look at these words specifically in Strong's Concordance, G5087, G5087, then you would be reading something very unusual. Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. There is such a, a beautiful circle there. It no doubt is the perfect P.I., and its numbers would be sacred. He loves me not just because I lay down my life. That would be so sad if that's where the end was. But he loves me because I lay it down. I do this, Jesus was saying willingly, because that was the will of my Father. But he loves me also because that I will take it up again. There are people that are specialists in doing things to themselves that are destructive, that they feel they are doing for the kingdom. But if, they, if it is not circular, if, if it is not a perfect PI in measuring the diagonal aspect and the whole circumference aspect, then it is missing the properties of substance that belongs to the perfect will of God. I lay my life down that I might take it up again. It was an opportunity to do something that was phenomenal. Not just for himself, but for the whole human race. For the whole bunch of those endless numbers of Ophanim who were fallen into human matter, who lost their memories in the land of forgetfulness. He was doing something not just to show that he had the power of resurrection to lay down and pick up his life, but doing it so that through Jesus Christ by a simulation, everyone else would have that right of resurrection. And then he's, he's emphatic. In John 10, 18, the next verse. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. You know, God the Father was involved via the Holy Spirit through every aspect of this whole great trial and the dynamics of this awesome event. So when we are looking at this in Strong's Concordance on some of these various references, and we are in the, the dictionary where we are dealing with the Greek, 
like Greek G5087. There are revelations we're going to share with you. Some of these things are going to open your eyes so wide that you're just going to see things you've never seen seen before. In John 10:18, no man taketh it from me. We've got to get that down. We've got to we've got to nail that down and clinch it. We've got to realize when we're talking about this thing on the cross that the Romans did not take the life of Jesus Christ. That the scribes and the Pharisees did not take the life of Jesus Christ. That there was no soldier, that there was no group of people, that there was no man anywhere on the face of the earth, alive or past alive, that would have ever had the authority or the power or the capability to take the life of Jesus Christ. It could not happen. Otherwise, he could not be Jesus Christ. Jesus, the anointed one. But I, but I lay it down. And I have the power to take it up again. You want to be sure that whenever you make a move in this valley of the shadow, this life in which we live on planet Earth, that when you do something that has a way of laying something down, that you also have the power in advance to pick it up so that there is a cycle, a circle. Wow. Then Jesus went on to say some things on the cross. We can't get into all the details of the things that he said when he talked to John, when he talked to the ladies and to his mother, the ladies who were followers of his, because there were very few of the men that, <laughs> John was one of them, very few that came out there and stood before that cross. They were so afraid of the Romans. But John was there. And Mary, the Marys were there. And then Jesus at, at a certain point said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. John 19.30 Another edition of what was going on there is described in Luke 23.46 When Jesus said, speaking on the cross to his Father, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then we cannot forget Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. Eli, Eli Lama Sabatana. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the thirty, sixty, hundredfold revelation of this incredulous word is the meaning in which the physical body of Jesus Christ, knowing and sensing that his spirit was getting ready to leave the body because there was a spiritual journey it was to take, there was a spiritual thing it was to do, that the body, as the spirit is beginning to leave, is saying this 
he lie, he lie. Lama sabak tonight. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? The body knew that it was not to die, but it could not live without the spirit. The Bible says that the body without the spirit is dead. Well, the body was to die, you know. And so the spirit had to leave the body so that it could die. But there's something incredibly awesome about that. We call it the long moment of a brief death. It's interesting. In Isaiah 26, 20, the scripture says, Come, my people, enter into my chambers and shut the doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Now we know if we were talking in the timetable as we count minutes and seconds, moments, that this is something different. There is somehow something double-hinged on this. There is a para to it. Something that allows it to be a recognition by term of what a moment is, and yet by a different kind of suspension becomes something that is elongated and differentiated, allowing some kind of sub support and substance of existing beyond what the name in itself conclusively by common dictionary defines means. When Jesus came with his disciples to Gethsemane, Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I go yonder to pray. Sometimes when we pray, we have to pray beyond the regular way that we pray the habitual way that we pray, the common way that we pray. Sometimes we have to go to pray in a way that we go yonder because there is a time when we need to reach God in a more profound way. Not that every time that we pray does not have its profoundness to it, but sometimes there is those moments that need to be so deeply profound that it reaches beyond. It reaches beyond the common aspects to a phenomenal experience. Well, the Bible made predictions that Jesus would suffer. He would become a sacrifice for humankind that he would die on the cross. But the Bible says that he would die for only a brief moment of death. And someone out there might say, well, there is nothing like that in the Bible. I beg your pardon, sir, but there is. It's so interesting how that different times I have people say to me, 
These things you're preaching, they're not in the Bible. I say, well, if you listen to the, my teachings and listen to all the way, you'll find that they are in the Bible. Someone mentioned the other day, when you mentioned the word revelation and you call the, the book of Revelation, Revelations, that's not correct. Well, it's correct for me. And it's correct from the standpoint of the Bible. You know, if you ever took the time to really look at the book of Revelations, and I'll just turn to it right now in my Bible. I have a King James. And any of you that have a King James Bible, if you go and you turn to the very first part, in the first chapter and first verse, it says, The Revelation, singular, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. But interestingly, in the title, which is above the chapter, it says, The Revelation of St. John the Divine. Now either St. John the Divine and Jesus Christ are the same person, or not being the same person, there is some kind of a deep meaning here, almost interstellar of expanse because we have two revelations in the same book so now we have revelations so in that sense it is the book of revelations because it's the revelation of saint john the divine and it's the revelation of jesus christ and then of course every time that you put a, pos a, a possessiveness to the name so that something is belonging to that revelation, singular, then you add an apostrophe and an S, and now you've got an S on it, and you've got revelations. And that's not all. There is more that can be added to that, but we won't spend this day, this glorious day, Easter, talking beyond that. You begin to get the, the moment of truth. Well, there's lots of things that people don't understand about the ancient Hebrew and the ancient Greek. For instance, when you read in the Bible and you read the word kingdom, the same word definition for kingdom in the, in the Greek or in the Hebrew for instance, in the book of Hebrew, the word that you find to say kingdom singular is the same word you find for kingdom plural. And in the Greek, it repeats that. It's the same thing. The same word that you find as a Greek word transliterated into English for kingdom also translates into kingdoms. And that's true for words like host and hosts, angel and angels. Like when we have a differentiation sometimes between the different Gospels of how many angels were there at the, at the sepulcher, at the, at the tombstone area. Some people say, well, one book says there's one, another book says there's two, and seems like there's another that says there's maybe three or more. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I'm going to reveal this awesome truth to you. But don't jump in on something. Hone in on it and try to make a concrete post out of it. Especially if you don't know the revelation. Because when you are reading in there, angel singular, that's just a translation by a person or persons who thought they were doing the right kind of translation. Didn't understand some things. I'm not saying they didn't understand this thing of needing to use the text, the contextuality, to determine what the singulars and the plurals were. I'm not saying they didn't know that. But I'm saying there are a lot of things that they didn't know. And the Bible tells us these things have, have to be revealed by the Holy Spirit. You can be the most profound Greek linguist or the most profound Hebrew linguist so that you speak those languages extremely proficiently. But now when you begin to change that into the, the language of, of English or other languages, then that transliteration has got to be understood. If it's into English, it's, the English has got to be understood. And the, the best word that you could find may not still be good enough to transliterate some Hebrew or some Greek words. So that it might take two words or three words or a whole sentence of words to really say the same thing that one word in the Greek or one word in the ancient Hebrew and of course ancient Greek also said. That is so important. So in my documentary film, I talk about translating the Greek into English. And to some people, that'll seem odd. Because normally, they have a different disposition of that in their mind. But I believe in what I call reverse translation. So that you go from English into, into, into Greek to find out what the best translation is rather than Greek into English. And that's reverse translation. So sometimes when I'm speaking and I use those terms, there's things like that that I'm referring to that the average person, even a lot of the translators, don't use. Those things are very important to know and understand. And if you look up the word rule, it can also be singular or plural. As revelation, our revelations can be singular or plural. And that's not all the words. For instance, spirit. If you look up the word spirit, it can be singular or plural in both the Hebrew part of the Bible and the Greek part of the Bible. So don't jump over the loop before you just wait upon the Lord. Because they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings as the eagles. Oh, yeah. It's so important to wait. And you know the word wait also in Hebrew means kawah. They that kawah upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Oh, there is something beautiful and powerful about that word. So, so, so important. Okay, let's move on. So, no one should try to compare the the wounds and the death to Jesus on the cross to any other human. Jesus was like humans in the sense that he had a human, human body, but in his relationship with God the Father, he wasn't like anyone else. He, he was the, the firstborn. He was God's only begotten son. He wasn't like anybody else. And he had the power to heal including healing himself. I laid down my life so that I can take it up again. He had power over death, not only for people out there that died and he raised to life again. Several examples. No man taketh it from me. We cannot forget that. Don't start going out there and becoming a Hitler and deciding to kill all the Jews because They somehow are the ones responsible for Jesus on the cross. That is absolutely disbelieving the Bible and disbelieving the very words of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, there's no man that can take this life from me. But I lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Wow. Wow. It's just all beautiful. It's just absolutely beautiful. So, someone says, well, where do you get this thing about that it says this brief moment of death? Why, there's all kinds of scriptures on that. And I'm going to share them with you. But a real important one in the Old Testament, Psalms 139, 7 through 8, says, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. And someone will say, oh, that must be referring to something else. Somebody else. Jesus didn't ever go to hell. Oh, yes, he did. And the Bible says he did. He went to hell to loosen spirits that were in prison there. It was called Upper Hades. Thou wilt not, thou wilt not leave, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither allow thy Holy One to see corruption. This means that his body would never see corruption. Now, there's another scripture about that in Psalms 49.9. That he would live forever and not see corruption is what it says. And in Acts chapter 2. 27 through 31, chapter 2, verses 27 through 31, it said basically the same thing. I will not leave his soul in hell, 
nor allow him to see corruption. What does corruption mean? Corruption means that corruption means that decomposition starts in. Now, how long do you have when someone dies before decomposition begins to have effect? Well, you have one moment. And that's why we call this the long moment of a brief death. You only have one moment. And death caused by autolysis and the body's own chemicals such as enzymes begin to cause decomposition of the molecular aspects of the body. You only have one moment. So then, there is only a brief, full moment, a brief, full moment of time after death before decomposition occurs. And the Bible says this would never, 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 never happen. He will never go into decomposition. He will never see corruption. How could this be possible? Well, when you take the ratio of time, differentiation between the physical world of mass and the spiritual world of spirit, the thousand to one ratio, ratio, then on that mathematic trip, you get approximately 17 minutes that he has to spend in upper Hades hell ministering to the spirits in prison described in 1 Peter 18, 20 through 22 and 1 Peter 4, 6 where Jesus went and preached to those persons who were sometimes disobedient in the days of Noah when the flood was getting ready to happen. And there's some beautiful things said there. And Isaiah prophesied about it. He said death will be swallowed up in victory. And so now we see that this meaning is so vivid and so real that this brief moment I described is absolutely 100% Bible. Jesus went down into Upper Hades and he preached what the Bible says is that, that he ascended. He not only ascended, but he also descended. There is so much to understand about the love of Jesus Christ. Janet Lee at the organ.
So if you were a person that was seeking to find gold or diamonds, wouldn't you be willing, if you thought you were on to a hot trail, to dig through a huge pile of rock and dirt to find that gold or those diamonds? I think most people would, and I don't see why not. Well, Jesus described it this way. He said, where your heart is, there is where your willingness of time and effort abides. I paraphrase that, but it gets the idea. And so, you see, it is so absolutely vital. Sometimes to realize that to get into this deep word of God, you've got to do some digging. There's, good, there's some work to it. But it's not going to be in vain. Just to understand how that, that Jesus in 1 Peter 3.19 went and preached into the spirits in prison. That this was a spirit journey, not a physical body journey. That his body was on the cross at that time. And during that moment, using the, the ratio of time differentiation, and, and remember that scripture that says, a day with the Lord, one day with the Lord, is as a thousand years. You see the difference of time. It could be awesome. In other words, a short time, when it's put into the spiritual mode, can be equivalent to giving you a longer time in the physical mode. And when you get into that understanding, it's just a beautiful thing. And he preached in the, to these spirits. And verse 20 says, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. You know, we talk different times about the sons of Enoch. Well, it's interesting how that Enoch walked with God and he was not, and we'll tell a story about this thing about Enoch and his offspring. But don't forget that the one person that was chosen to remain on earth and to keep a species alive on earth was Noah and his sons, and they were all offspring of Enoch. This thing about Enoch is not to be taken lightly. There is a deep revelation connection there that must not be forgotten. So in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, verse 6, it says, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. You know, this is sort of along that line spoken of in Romans by Paul. Calling, calling those things that are not as though they are. How the, this works its way back throughout all of the various echelons of the 30, 60, 100-fold aspects of the physical life situation, but also goes beyond into the spirit kingdom. It touches people that are dead and all of a sudden gives them an aspect of being enlivened as though they were 
back in a fleshly body, still having the opportunity of salvation, the opportunity of chance. And this all being done within a 17-minute opportunity and chance. And this happening while Je the body of Jesus was on the cross. And that's where he went. And what he accomplished. It would not be long before they would take him down from the cross. Before they would take him and put him in the tomb. And seal the tomb, the entrance of that tomb, with a two-ton-plus weight stone. They would also seal it using other methods. Because the scribes and the Pharisees went to Pilate and said, this fellow has followers. And they might try to steal his body out and say that he, he, he resurrected. And if that happened, we would really be in trouble with our religion because if it got out that this man resurrected, we would have a real difficult time handling that. So we're pleading with you to send the royal guard in to make sure that nothing like that happens until you get past the good ways past a day or two or three past the, the third day so that he did not rise on the third day. So Pilate said, okay, go ahead, do what you want, we'll give you the, the soldiers. Now these particular kind of soldiers that were put there, these were top legionnaires. These were men that their life was at stake if they failed the job they were given to do. It was life and death if they failed to protect that tomb. And you know that these were not cowards. You know that these were not men that would be afraid to stand and fight against a whole group of individuals many times their number. But then again, they were not stupid either. They were trained legionnaires. They were trained smart men, talented. And there they were, standing to block the resurrection. And the stone was put at the mouth to block the resurrection. Well, who rolled the stone away? That's our next object. Who rolled the stone away? This is so important to understand this revelation. We read about this young man in Mark 16, 5. A young man clothed in long white garments. When the, the Marys came looking for Jesus, they said, He is not here. Now what did that mean? So, some people are so narrow-minded to say, well, that just meant he wasn't right there in the, in the tomb. Is that right? Come on. Why didn't the angel say, well, he's not here in the tomb, but he's just outside in the garden. He's outside, just outside there. Why don't you go out and see if you can find him? I think he's laying on the ground out there somewhere. Or I think he's out there walking. 
That's not what that meant. That is not what that meant. And when you look up the word for risen in G, which means Greek, 1453, one of the meanings for that word means taken up. (laughs) He is not here. He has been taken up. Luke 24, 5. Why seek you the living among the dead? He's not in the tomb and he's not in the graveyard. He's not here. He was taken up. He was, he's risen. Ah. Then Mary Magdalene, she, she's a tough character. She just doesn't give up. She loves that Jesus. She wants to see that Jesus. She just believes he's got to be somewhere, maybe hidden out there where the gardener is keeping everything properly trimmed. And she sees this person and she thinks he's the gardener. And she says, where have you laid my Lord? If you know where he is, just tell me and I will, I will, I will get him out of here. Whoa, what a, what a follower. What a believer. People that believe beyond. Like when Jesus went to pray, he said, you stay here. I know you're going to fall asleep. But he said, you stay here and I'm going to go out yonder and get in touch with God. She was that kind of a person. She believed in him. She believed in him, what he had done. Whether he was in a walking body or a lying dead body, she believed in her Jesus. And that gardener turned around and said, Mary. And Mary must have been absolutely astounded and nearly freaked out. And the first thing that Mary would want to do would be to run to that Jesus and fall at his feet and to hug his feet and to cry tears of joy from her eyes to fall and moisten upon his feet. But Jesus in this body said, Touch me not. I am not yet ascended to the Father. Now there's a big deep meaning in that. But what he was saying, if you come and try to touch me, I'm in a photo transition form. And you, your hand will just reach through the picture of my body. So don't touch me. I don't want you to experience that. I want you to wait. And it's very interesting. It's very interesting that it was just shortly, I don't think very many hours, before Jesus finished whatever that was that he said, I have not ascended to the Father. Now the Father is a very important connection to John chapter 14. Verses 1 through 6. That Jesus said, I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. For in my Father's house are many mansions. 
If it were not true, I would have told you. The Father is connected to this Father's house. And that's where Jesus is going to go. When he leaves the planet Earth, that's a long time understood. He taught that to his disciples and followers. And he's saying, I haven't made myself prepared yet for my ascent to the Father's house. But I am getting prepared where I'm at right now. Well, where was he at right then? Well, he was with the angels, risen up above in the ziths. Some people call those flying saucers, but they're not flying saucers. They're chariots of the gods. And you know, it's so important because when we look at Psalms 68, Psalms tells us the story, and we should know if that happened then, that what's going to happen again should know that. Let's just look at Psalm 68 just briefly. And let's just keep in mind that in Psalm 69, which is just a chapter right after 68, and in the original Hebrew and Greek, they did not have chapters and verses and separations of the words for, with, by spaces. And in that Chapter 69, which follows chapter 68, verse 21, it says, And they gave me also gall for my meat, and, my, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Do you have any doubt about who that is talking of? Clearly, absolutely talking about Jesus, about Yahweh-el. Now in 68, what does it say? In 68 Psalms, verse 17, it says, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. And the Lord is among them, as in Sinai, the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity to captivity. Thou hast received gifts for men, and for the rebellious also, that the Lord might dwell among them. Way back in the time of Moses, the cloud that followed over and followed ahead of the children of Israel, so that they moved when the cloud moved, they stopped when the cloud stopped, was all about this divine relationship with the angels and their holy chariots. The Bible talks in Psalm about Yaviel riding the winds of the chariot. This is deep Bible stuff that's been in the Bible and speaking from the Bible for a long, long time. These angels, in the style that I like to call them, which is a pronunciation abbreviation rather than the literal breakdown of the of the word from the Hebrew, Shinons. And they were angels. And they were these angels that is talking about him. About here. Yes, there were some beautiful things that Jesus said. In Acts 1, 10 through 11, Jesus said, You men of Galilee, or pardon me, it was 
not Jesus that said it, it was about Jesus. You men of Galilee, why stand here gazing up into the heaven? Why were they gazing into the heaven? Because when Jesus left, the Bible says he was taken up. Yeah, it says that. He was carried up was the word. This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now I want you to get that. I want you to put that into your brain. I want you to put that into your mind. I want you to put that into your heart. I want you to put that into your spirit and your soul. I want you to dance with it. I want you to parade with it. I want you to live with it as a, as a living manna. I want you to transassimulate it. Because when Jesus left, the manner in which he left is the manner in which he is going to come back. I want you to get that. I want you to get that. We got a we got a scriptural proof here. Something really, 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 really important. Why are you gazing up into the sky? The same Jesus, Acts 1, 10 through 11. The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven. Take, taken up, carried up shall so come in like manner, in the same manner he was taken up by these angels, that when he was taken up during that time of being in the tomb, he was taken up. Who rolled the stone away? Well, how is Jesus going to come back? Well, let's look at Jude 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these sayings. Behold the Lord, capital O, L, capital O, capital R, capital B, which is the, the spelling that they use to describe Yahweh, or as we call it, Yahweh-El, meaning Jesus Christ. The same Jesus Christ, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints and angels or saints being angels and those words interchange well then if Jesus is coming back with tens of thousands of his angels then that means that when he left he left with tens of thousands of his angels because it says in the same manner that he left he is coming back and now we have the prophecy that says how he is coming back, and he's coming back with tens of thousands of angels. So then he left with tens of thousands of angels. And this happened when Song of Solomon describes it. The state that he was in. When it says, Wake not my beloved until he please. These transitions were happening. Photo transitions were moving into photo translations. And there are awesome scriptures to, to describe that.
in some really wonderful and beautiful ways. And we want to share as much of it with you as we can. In Matthew 26, 53, in the Greek Concordance Dictionary 3003, for the word legion, a Roman legion is 10,000 men. Sometimes they add a sur to it, sur addition, of some 2,000 men. Both of those numbers are important. The 10,000 and the 12,000 by the, two, the additional 2,000. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, 53, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Now some people say, yeah, but you know, that never did happen. Yeah, but it did happen. And the way that this is actually written says that it did. When you take the word shall, and you put it into its proper translation. Shall can mean shalt, shalt. Um, thou shalt do this, that's S-H-A-L-T, or should. With the idea of expectation. And should means will, like the will of God, will. You know what Jesus said? He said, it's a command of my Father, it's the will of my Father that I lay down my life and I take it back up. It's the will of my Father. It, it, it's got to do with the expectation of the Holy Spirit, even. And so, we have, from this word shall, some beautiful things that, that the Scripture said. And is and and saying that is just so important not to miss. So important not to miss. Blessed be the name of God. I, I, I just want you to get this because we're, good, we're not done. So what are some of the things that this means? Well, shall means should and should means will. And you can look up at, at in the Greek, G, 1014. And the Greek... Dictionary 2133, which is from the Greek dictionary 215 or 2132, and it means to be of power. Jesus said, I have the power to lay my life down, to pick it up. And my father taught me the power of resurrection in one of the chapters that says that, that, that the father taught him the power of resurrection. And so then when you go on with this, to the G2307, which is from G2309. We're talking G, we, we, we are, are, are talking understanding of Greek. So that from 2307, that is from 2309, 2309 mean, it, it is defined to mean be or will. So what we really have here in Matthew 2653 is that it's the will of my Father to presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. And when he uses the word, 
Thinkest thou not that I cannot now, now, N-O-W, pray? We have the tense, which actually connects to the now, to the, to the, to the doing of it, which means, well, do it, W-I-L-L, do it. And that enfolds in G737 the idea of suspension, which is a derivative of G142, which means to sail away, to remove, aior, and take up, be taken up. That's what it means. My God. The very meaning is in here. But it couldn't be translated correctly because of these people, we don't put them down, we don't knock them. They just didn't see this revelation. They just didn't understand this mystery. And these numbers are so very important. They have application. We're going to get into that. I, I want you to understand this thing about numbers has meaning. When we get into the, the numbers, like even back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 19.19, it said there was going to be a sign put in Egypt, a pillar between Upper and Lower Egypt is what it was talking about, on the border between Upper and Lower Egypt. And it said it would be to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which means Yahweh, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, in the midst of Egypt. And that, of course, is the Great Pyramid. And I'm not a paleontologist, but based on math, I can see how they could come up with it. They have used math to say that this Great pyramid in Egypt has in it, or had in it, to finish it up, to make it to be what it is, 144,000 stones. Now that is very, very important, as you're going to see as we go on here, that number 144,000. And it's unto God. No wonder it's got, a, it's got 144,000 stones, because that's a divine number. So if you take 12,000 times 12,000, you get 144,000. And we're into legions. 12,000 legions times 12,000 legions is 144,000. And then we get into Revelations, chapter 7, verses 4, 4 through 8. The tribes of Israel. And guess what the number is there? Well, each tri tribe is shown to have 12,000 individuals. And so when you multiply each tribe having 12,000 individuals time the tw times the time the 12 you get 144,000 for the 12 tribes. The pyramid 144,000 in the midst of e Egypt. Who was over there in Egypt in that lower Egypt where this pillar this pyramid was? Well, children of Israel and in Revelation 21.10, it says that, G, that, that John was carried away in the Spirit. And he saw the measurement of Jerusalem. And by the time you take the twelve gates, the twelve pearls, the twelve foundations, the twelve jewel stones, the walls, and their measurement, 
you keep getting the number 144,000. Because that is the measurement of all these things. That is the measurement of the holy city Jerusalem of which the physical old city of Jerusalem is the symbol of the, of the holy city, the city that is going to come down from heaven. And in Mark 3.14, when Jesus ordains and surnames his disciples, which the Bible says were twelve, he takes Peter and sets him aside differently. And he says, you'll be the rock because he was going to be the allocator. He's going to have something to do with being in charge of those who go into Abraham's bosom. And there's two bosoms. There's the Abraham's bosom and there's the Father's bosom. But the rest of the twelve, the others... He describes these sons of thunders, and we've done the teachings on that. That actually means the Artursians of the father's house, the offspring of Enoch. And then, after he names the sons of Zebedee, which were the original sons of thunder, he does not make a distinguished differentiation and different applications of surnames to the rest of them, but he just goes on after, after an Ann, and if you know the spiritual meaning of Ann and, and how many important uh, aspects that it can, it can render and add, so that all of the rest of these disciples are considered to be sons of thunder. These numbers are adding up. The importance of this is so incredible. Well, there's another word, an important word that ties into all this, that opens up the book. Like that book that says, it's in the book, just take a look. The word of God came down. First John says that he is, he would, the word was made flesh. In Psalms 91, 11 through 12, in the Hebrew Dictionary of Strong's, number 6680. You want to look this up. You want to look this up because it is a breakdown of what the word charge. He gave his angels charge over thee, lest thou dash thy foot against the tombstone or against the stone, the two-ton I think it's two and a half ton stone. The word charge, C-H-A-R-G-E, what exactly does it mean when he gave his angels charge? And it's his angels, pronoun. Well, when you read the translation or the, the H-6680, this is, there is snuck in there a code. And the word for charge is translated to tens, T-E-N-S. There's other things too, but that's stuck in there. Just like in one of the places, there is the word change that's put in there. And that, that is a, a different area. I've, I've ministered on that. But it's a code word uh, so that when you apply that to certain scriptures and certain meanings, 
uh, it allows you to make a change, whether that would be mathematically, whether it would be scripturally, but it allows you uh, to be able to see something in a way you could not see it without that code word. It's part of the akava, the solution of, of riddles. Wow. So, we've got charge, H6680, and in the New Testament, G1781 through 82. Okay. He gave his angels charge over thee. Least thou dash thy foot against the stone. What stone? The tombstone. And the guards that were out there, which were connected with the stone, because they became part of the deal to guarantee that that stone would not be moved and so the resurrection could not happen. And God gave his angels charge during this time. Who rolled away the stone? The Artursians, the angels, the Shinyans, described in 68 chapter of Psalms, described throughout different places in the Bible. They rolled away that stone. How did they do it? Well, <laughs> I wish I had more time. I could describe how they did it using their, their special kinds of, of rays that they use, called zone ray. A zone ray can move an object from one position to a superposition or a different position, just like it's less than the weight than a feather. And if I had the time to show you the scripture, I would show you that when Jesus came out of that, that sepulcher, came up from off that, that laver of stone, folded this veil neatly and put it on the, the stone laver. I believe that at that time, a fulfillment in a additional sense of Tanuel and her son Yavi happened right on earth when Mary in her grief and her deepness of emotions went into a special place in her mind and that her body felt her spirit rise and go to the tomb. And I believe she was there at that moment. And I believe that there are scriptures to show, which I don't have time for today, that the two of them her arm through his arm danced. Danced out of the sepulcher and the angels were shouting and the legion, legionnaires 
were so frightened, it says they were as dead men. They were petrified. When they saw these tens of thousands of legions of angels and the Ziths hovering up in the skies, they were so overwhelmed there was nothing in their brain, nothing in all their battle techniques, nothing on all of their experiences, nothing in all their lives that could equivocate an understanding of what they were seeing. They were frightened nearly to death. They shriveled up on the ground like whimpering uh, little kids. And it's interesting that when one of the persons was seen, that they, she described it as a young man. You don't really think of an angel being a young man. Well, these are angels that elect. These are Arturians, offspring of the Enix, from the father's house who came, who were prophesied to come by Enoch, of all persons, who were prophesied to come. And they did come because they had charge over Jesus to lift him up. Their charge was to lift him up, to take him up. And he was there when Mary Magdalene saw his photo transition. And he said, don't touch me. Not yet. Only hours later, she did touch him after he had ascended. And it is so interesting that in the book of the Gospel of John that Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 51, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That's upon has all kinds of meanings, but it meant that they were, mag they were totally in, in charge of lifting him up. Well, Jesus understood this thing about lifting up. He understood that this was going to happen. He knew. And in John 3.14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. The medical symbol with the rod and the serpent on it is, of course, incorrect. I've done a teaching on this out of numbers to show that the real meaning of it was there was an angel, a cherub angel that was on the top part of this enzyme, this rod, and there was a serpent beneath him and his foot was pressing down on the head of that serpent. And so when Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. It wasn't saying, now, as Jesus, as Moses lifted up a snake, I'm going to be lifted up like a snake. No, he was saying, I'm going to be lifted up like an angel. I lay down my life so I can take it up. Blessed be the name of God. 
This is a time for rejoicing. There are there are the the host. And it's so easy to not understand which one's applied to how and who, when and who. But we know in Joshua 5:14 through 15 definition rev, reference from the Strong's Concordance of Hebrew 6635 that there was a captain of the Lord's host, a captain of the Lord's host. This isn't just the host of stars, which can have some symbolic meaning. It's different. And we know that in Genesis 32-2, there were two camps, two hosts. God's host described Hebrews 24-26. And then we know that there's a different kind of a host that were symbolic physical metaphors described in Numbers 2, 4 through 34 like the host of the tribes. They were called host. And they were broken by using the, they were broken into divisions and that's why the word plural because it was divisions. Now I'm going to close this here in just a, just a few minutes. But then in Amos 4, 13 through tw- and 20. 7, 8, Amos 4, 13, and 27, or pardon me, Amos 4, yeah, 13 and 27, it speaks of the Lord, the God of hosts. And it says his name is Lord of hosts. Well, then, there's a special connection in Jeremiah 50, verse 18, the Lord of hosts of the God of Israel. And so we have that special connection. So, one last scripture on that as I start to bring this to the close. In Genesis 8, 9 through 11, a little horn rises up, magnifies itself, even to the point that it casts down stars and comes against the prince of the host of heaven. Acts 7, 42, 43 speaks of the host of heaven. So, there's much to be taught about the hosts. But you can't just read it and say it's exactly this way or exactly that way without really having a deep understanding of it. But it's broken down so that Yaviel is the Lord of the host of the Ophidim, the wheels. Gabriel is the Lord of the host of the cherubim. And Michael is the Lord of the host of the cherubims. Someone says, well, does that make someone bigger or better or over the other? Don't get into that. Jesus said, if you're called to called, and even if you're a master and you're called, says you've got to be able to become a servant. Jesus came as a servant. Said he didn't come, he could have come as an angel, but he didn't. He came and he took on the body of Abraham so he could be a, like a brother. Who rolled away the stone? And the brief moment. That's my conclusion. God bless you as Janet Lee plays on the organ and we close.